Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, then. Um, so Out of Patience has been broadcasting for almost four years and about 400 episodes, and it's time to take a little break. But I'm not going to just go off the air and leave you all abandoned. What I'm going to do is over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to replace my normal interview show every Tuesday with other projects you might have missed that I produced over the years at Offscript Health. And we're going to start today and the next two weeks with a three-part series on metastatic breast cancer called Denied. So some brief backstory. Having been involved in patient advocacy for so long, the breast cancer conversation is enduring and critical. And the metastatic conversation within that conversation is most unsung and most unheralded. So the voices of this community needed to be amplified, needed to be heard. So we approached a couple of organizations and create a wonderful three-part narrative series on these stories and these issues. So we brought together Metaviver, the Tiger Lily Foundation, and Leslie's Week in partnership with Seattle Genetics, Merck, and Aichi Sankyo to bring this series to light. And it's my privilege to play for you today episode one of Denied, a metastatic breast cancer story. Enjoy. This wasn't the first hardest thing I dealt with. I dealt with my husband deploying multiple times where I thought he was going to die. I dealt with infertility. I dealt with being abused by foster care. I dealt with being poor, living in a bad neighborhood, being exposed to drugs around me. I dealt with all these obstacles. And this wasn't going to shut me down. No. <laughs> the year is 2009. Shante Drakeford's only 25 years old, working in labor and delivery as a nurse in Maryland, just outside D.C. Her husband just returned home from Iraq. He came home and the very next day I started having nipple discharge. And it was like a light yellow color because I was a nurse and wasn't afraid to get checked out. I immediately made an appointment, saw my provider and they got me an ultrasound. And they told me that the nipple discharge was normal, nothing to be worried about. They didn't give me a mammogram. I was 25 years old and they was like, you don't need it, you're fine. If the nipple discharge ever turns bloody, then come back. So over the next couple of years, that is what Shante does. And in the meantime, she's just living her life, becoming a nurse practitioner and driving to the mountains in her free time. Snowboarding is my love language. <laughs> Traveling with her husband. In Alaska, Georgia, Washington State, Korea. Adulting in her typical exuberant way and just starting to really live her life. Having fun, being free, buying houses, <laughs> accomplishing goals. We were actually trying to have children. Just was really enjoying my life. But a few years later, Shante's back at the doctor's. 
By the time the nipple discharge turned bloody, I did have a cyst that was palpable and it was giving me a bit of pain and it was soft and squishy at that time. And I asked, what can I do about it? Can I get a mammogram? Whenever she brings it up with her doctor, she's told, you don't need a mammogram. And I'm like, but I have a lump. Shantae is persistent. She keeps pushing until she finally schedules a mammogram. And when I showed up that day, the radiologist came out and was like, we're going to cancel your mammogram because you just don't need it. So my intuition was telling me something was wrong, but I never thought cancer. There are many providers all telling Shantae the same thing. Stop overreacting. You're fine. They just gave me another ultrasound, told me it's just a cyst, nothing to be concerned about, but we'll just take that breast duct out. Shantae goes into surgery, and then she wakes up. The lump was still there. I'm like, what? Her doctor tells her that is fine. The lump will go away eventually. And then they send her home. And then that lump that was once soft, it turned hard like a rock. That's when they kind of took me seriously. It was like, okay, you need to go get an MRI right away. They called me the very next day, told me something is concerning. Shantae finally gets the mammogram she's been asking for. This is after six years of asking for screenings. Her doctors ignored her until her nipple was literally bleeding. It wasn't until I went for my mammogram and biopsy that cancer kind of came into play. This is possibly the worst news a person can get. But Shantae is not only an optimist, she is a badass. And she'll do whatever it takes to live her life as long as possible. Stage one or two are breast cancers that generally have a very high cure rate. That's Dr. Nancy Lin, an oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Patients with stage three breast cancer will typically receive more intensive treatment, but they too also have a potential to be cured of their breast cancer. I meet with my oncologist and that's when he drops the, you have stage four bomb. Stage four is otherwise known as metastatic breast cancer, and that's breast cancer that's spread outside of the breast and the regional lymph nodes. When people die from breast cancer, they're dying from metastatic breast cancer, otherwise known as MBC. They told me it spread to my lungs, multiple spots in my spine. I have a huge tumor in my left hip. That rib that was hurting and I thought I hurt myself from snowboarding. Nope, it's cancer. Not only was it cancer, but the kind that you will die from. There is no out. There is no get-out-of-jail-free card. MBC means that they'll be in treatment for the rest of their lives. About a third of MBC patients will live at least five years post-diagnosis, but many don't make it that far. Shantae's diagnosis came on June 17, 2015, at just 31 years old. So I was fighting for six years of this complaint in my breast and just was dismissed and wasn't given the proper high-risk screening and wasn't really taken seriously, even though I'm a healthcare professional, you know? So I don't know if it was because I was young or if it was because I was, you know, Black. It's really hard to say. It doesn't really matter. I shouldn't have been told, you're fine, everything's normal. Had I gotten just a simple mammogram, I probably could have gotten diagnosed with early stage breast cancer. But by the time they took me seriously, 
it had already spread all over my body. Shante's story is not an anomaly. It did not happen in a vacuum. Black women die every day because of the injustice of the healthcare system. I'm Mae McCarmo, and this is Denied. There is no cure for stage four breast cancer. There is no stage five. They do their cost-benefit analysis, cheaper dead than alive. Why do we want to keep them living longer? Their medications are too expensive. Why aren't you asking me about clinical trials? Because I was so young, I was basically ignored by my doctor. Metastatic breast cancer is, you know, an unsolved frontier. This is a very profound disease that nobody knows about. Nobody's ever really asked if it can be different. Women, most often Black women, have been delayed dismissed and denied care for way too long. Changing this would mean changing an entire healthcare system. It would mean flipping the script. It would mean creating a clean slate. It would mean putting the power in the hands of people who healthcare was meant to serve. It would mean reimagining how we conduct research. It would mean lobbying Congress, amplifying people's voices who were left out of the conversation, and putting money into the right hands. So trust me, I know it's a lot. Changing a healthcare system does not happen overnight. But I still have hope. Because it is happening. There are people who have no choice but to take matters into their own hands. These are patients, doctors, researchers, family and friends who are pushing for equitable change every single day. This series tells their stories in three parts. This is part one, the face of breast cancer. Hi, I'm Mae McCarmo. I am a mom, an immigrant, survivor of three wars, a cancer warrior, I'm a healthcare strategist, a speaker, a patient whisperer, a badass, and a unicorn. But I'm probably known most for being the CEO of Tiger Lily Foundation, a national organization that educates, advocates for, and supports young women before, during, and after breast cancer. As a Black woman and a breast cancer survivor, I've seen firsthand the battle Black women have to go through to get equitable care. At 31 years old, I was taking a shower one day, had Diana Ross on. I'm in the shower, I'm dancing, I'm having a good time, getting ready to go to my job. And in one instant, I feel my breast and there is a lump that I didn't feel there before. I go to my doctor and I say, I have a lump. And they say that you're too young to have breast cancer. Come back in your 40s. I have to push for screening and the results come back negative. But my question was, I can feel this thing in my body, but you can't see it. So your technology must be wrong. The radiologist laughed at me. And so I asked to meet with a breast surgeon and said I wanted a biopsy. And she pushed back for some time. I pushed for more than six months, and the lump had doubled in size. It turns out that I had triple negative breast cancer, the one that's most aggressive in Black women. It was shocking to realize that although I'd done all the right things, I was still dismissed and denied and delayed getting treatment. My mother, I say she gave me life, and she saved my life. She taught me the importance of breast exams at just 13 years old. Thanks to her, I caught my lump before I metastasized. If I waited six more months, I may not be alive today. In a way, I was lucky, but many women are not as lucky as I was. And so 
my job is to help them to become their best and most fearless advocates. I hear women every day say that, I wish I had pushed harder. I wish I knew sooner. They're telling the same story. They were not talked to about certain things. They were not offered biomarker testing or clinical trials. They were denied information and tools that could have saved their lives. What separates us from those who live and those who die most often is a zip code. It's racism, innate biases. It's lack of education about what matters. These women need someone to fight for them. So that is what I do. And in all my years doing this work, I've learned that the women who need the most support are often the ones left out of the conversation. The people living with metastatic breast cancer. There are many treatments targeting MBC. There is radiation, chemotherapy, immunotherapies, hormone therapies, but not one of these treatments is a cure. The reason that we tell people that we generally cannot cure metastatic breast cancer is because we can't stop therapy in most patients and that most patients will eventually run out of treatments and we don't have that next treatment ready to go. So I know this sounds bleak, but there is good news. New treatments are being developed as we speak and people are living longer and longer with MBC. Dr. Nancy Lin is one of the most prominent breast cancer oncologists in the country. Her focus is on finding treatments for metastatic breast cancer. You know, when people say, well, gee, you know, there's been all these years of research poured into cancer research, how come we still don't have a cure? I say, well, sort of like when you see a building go up, somebody has to make the plans, and then you're like digging the foundation, and imagine you're digging the foundation and all you have is hand tools, there's no electricity yet, you don't feel like anything's happening, but actually something is happening. We're kind of almost at that inflection point, like the foundation's been dug, we actually have electricity, there are power tools, you can start to see the scaffolding go up. I really think that we're going to see some amazing, amazing advances over the next decade. Dr. Lin and those like her have real hope that a cure is on the horizon for MBC. They may even find one or more cures in our lifetime. Much like it was for AIDS, we could find ways to treat MBC so it's chronic and not terminal. But there's just one problem. The better the treatments get, the bigger the disparities get if some patients get the best treatments and some patients don't. I think unless we actively put in measures to mitigate disparities, the disparities are actually going to get worse. Today in 2023, nearly one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer. Up to 30% of those women will become metastatic. Anyone who's ever had breast cancer is at risk for recurrence. And the average rate of surviving breast cancer, if you have MBC, is only 20 to 24 months. But worst of all, Black women are 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than white women. While the advances in breast cancer care are fast and furious... What we're not seeing is that same decline in mortality for the people who are affected the most by it. And that's a really disturbing trend. Dr. Monique Gary, a.k.a. Dr. Mo, is one of the few Black breast surgeons in the entire state of Pennsylvania. If we're going to change those statistics, you know, the, the mortality 40% higher, we have got a lot of work to do to make sure that everyone is at that table and everybody is participating in true health equity. 
To change this stat, we have to understand it. And this disparity starts with how we talk about breast cancer and how we market it. I'm a big resource person. And as I was looking up information about metastatic breast cancer, 2015 didn't have that much information, right? And I saw the same thing, older white women. I didn't see anyone young. I didn't see anyone Black. For a long time, this is the archetype I saw everywhere too. The bald, older white woman who somehow was always smiling. She was on all the marketing materials, the oncologist pamphlets, ads, news stories. And to be clear, I'm not referring to one individual white woman or every white older woman. It's just that this is the type of face that has been the face of breast cancer for decades. Esther Boykin's a therapist who works with a lot of Black breast cancer patients. That lack of diversity in how we even represent the illness makes so many patients feel excluded from the care that they actually are supposed to be getting. So you show up already feeling on edge as an outsider, as the the one and the only in all of these spaces. Marketing executive and cancer survivor, Monisha Parker, knows exactly what Esther is talking about. Even things as simple as when I started talking to my surgeon about reconstruction options and I go to the office and he's showing me all these examples, but these are all white, like I'm not a white woman. It's going to look different on my body. Like there was nothing for him to show me. There's not just one face of breast cancer. If I don't see me in the resources, I'm much less likely to then find the energy to go to the support group that has the flyer with, you know, sort of the like 50 something bald white women smiling. And quite frankly, I imagine that there are white women who meet that age demographic who also look at that picture and go, that's not me either. Okay, so where the hell does this poster child even come from? A few years ago, something happened to Shante that gave her some ideas of her origins. It's 2019, and Shante's at Tiger Lily's annual Breast Health Day on Capitol Hill. It's an event where we speak to Congress members about things like breast cancer funding, MBC, and health equity. Anyway, Shante is part of this panel for women living with MBC. And she's super excited because there's press covering the event. But when she tunes in to watch the news, her heart sinks. None of us from the panel was on the news screen. It said breast cancer event on the Hill, right? Didn't mention metastatic or stage four. Then, you know, I'm one of the only Black people represented on the panel. I ain't show up not once. The screen and the images were all focused on people who were white and bald. So I was pissed because nothing we said impacted y'all. Y'all didn't listen. It was like, oh, we're not going to mention stage four. Oh, we're not going to mention metastatic because it's too scary. We don't want to talk about that. But none of the patients who were metastatic were represented because we look too normal, right? How can this person represent cancer? They don't even look like they have cancer. Okay, I want to pause for a second because it's really important to understand what she's saying here. Because there's no cure for MBC, 
Treatment plans are usually focused on keeping people healthy in the long term, not getting rid of disease. This means that MBC patients don't always get the most intense doses or types of treatments, the stuff that makes you lose your hair or look sick. So MBC patients don't always look like they have cancer. The media got there wanting to see pink ribbons and empowerment. And what they saw was women who live with MBC, who look healthy, but who were dying. And they didn't feel comfortable putting that in the news. And so the target is we're going to play on people's emotions by having someone look severely ill versus a person who is young because we don't want to talk about the youth getting cancer. The whole point was to have them see women who look like Shantae for the first time and realize there's more than one face to breast cancer. But they only showed women that people want to see when they watch TV to feel good about themselves. It's to appease the public, to make it easier to chew and not face the hard facts. But our culture tends to avoid confronting important things like health, illness, or death. We want to focus on the positives. And breast cancer found early is 90% curable. This is why it's so important to catch breast cancer early on. Because MBC is 100% fatal. And to make matters worse, it's the kind of breast cancer no one wants to talk about. So people just tell the same story ignoring the very difficult realities of MBC. This means that women like Shantae, who are dying to be heard, continue to be silenced. The winds are changing, though. MBC patients refuse to be ignored. They're creating new spaces to share their stories, and they're changing how we see and understand them. They're showing that MBC and Black women have different stories of adversity and diversity. And now we're seeing marketing materials, campaigns and resources having more diverse faces. And even though the poster child's presence is fading, she is still very powerful. She somehow managed to influence everyone's beliefs on what people who get breast cancer should look like. One of the really concerning trends across the world has been the decreasing age or the younger age at which people are presenting with a number of different kinds of cancers. So in the past, experts recommended that women get mammograms beginning at age 50. But this year, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force made a historic call to change the recommended age to 40. I learned to have breast cancer at 32 years old. And I know so many other women who were under 40 when they were diagnosed. Monisha Parker was in her 20s. I was 28, so I literally attended my 10-year high school reunion. I was in a new relationship, fairly new to my job. It was a fresh chapter professionally and personally, and yeah, breast cancer kind of, it felt like running into a brick wall. Conservation biologist Christine Hodgson was in her mid-30s. So I actually discovered the lumps myself because I was too young to get mammograms. I was only 34 years old. I didn't have a history of breast cancer in my family. And because I was so young, I was basically ignored by my doctor for about seven or eight months, where he really just kind of did the watch and wait. 
you only know what you know at the time. And, and I didn't know that much. So I trusted my doctor. And after about eight months of kind of watching and waiting and the lumps not going away on their own, we did a biopsy. And this time it did show that I actually had breast cancer. And then later we found out that my breast cancer had actually spread to my lungs. Shantae, Christine, and Monisha were all too young to get mammograms. Shantae and Christine could have both been diagnosed early if their doctors had only listened to them, not dismissed and delayed a diagnosis. Dr. Mo says his bias often starts in medical school. We used to learn or we used to teach that cancer was a disease of aging, and it is not necessarily the case. These women are less anomalous than you would think. And of course, it's not just age. I noticed an expression on her face change from a smile to a concerned look. And so I asked her, you know, what's wrong? And she said, how long has this been here on your chest? It's December 2020. Gary Davis is a 58-year-old dad with three adult kids. He's closing his business up for the holidays and getting ready for the day when his wife notices something really, really strange. I proceeded to, to feel my chest area. I noticed a, a lump right above my right nipple. He gets an appointment at his doctor's the next day. And when she examined me, which I would never forget this, she said, I hate to ruin your Christmas, but I think you may have breast cancer. I said, well, what are you talking about? I said, you know, how can a man get breast cancer? You know, I'm, you know, this is something that women only get. Gary never even considered that he could be at risk for breast cancer. And now he's being told he has stage four breast cancer. Like what? Stage four? This is all new to me. I said, what do you mean stage four? Men account for less than 1% of all breast cancer diagnosis each year. But because male breast cancer is rare, it's just not really well studied. So we don't really know how to best treat men with it. Because many men don't think they can get breast cancer, they're not taught to recognize the signs and symptoms. So men like Gary often don't catch it until the cancer has really progressed. A study in 2019 found that male breast cancer patients have a 19% higher mortality rate than women. Another study done in 2023 found that survival rates for men have barely changed in the past 30 years. One of my favorite hashtags, hashtag check your chest, right? Male breast cancer is on the rise and we see men with MBC too and they are a silent, silent, silent minority and they don't feel represented. So hashtags like this are a small step in trying to educate people and challenge this long-held idea of who gets breast cancer. When we start seeing our faces in the breast cancer space, we realize that we have to learn about it because our lives depend on it. Education can lead to finding cancer early. Education can help you to be more empowered when it comes to getting the care you deserve. Education can help you to become your own best advocate. But education is only one piece of the puzzle. Because Shantae did all the right things. She went to a doctor when she noticed something was wrong. She's a nurse for God's sake. And yet, there's only so much you can do when your doctor does not believe you. They blew her off, and because of it, my friend is going to die one day from MBC. And that makes me really freaking angry. 
In hindsight, I looked back at my records and it literally stated like a phrase, having pain in breast, give it ultrasound, but cancel mammogram, patient is fine. Really just dismissive. When a woman goes to her doctor and she says, you know, I have a lump, I have an issue, we need to believe patients that they're having the symptoms they're having, that things deserve additional imaging. So I know many people who have been ignored or dismissed when they had a problem or not given a test when they were needed. I get it. I know doctors are busy or they may not have the right knowledge. Oftentimes, though, it's the unconscious bias that runs through the veins of this country. Whatever the reason, though, when you encounter this as a patient, it can be hard to trust in healthcare. And part of getting care is trusting. For many Black women, there's this tremendous need to self-advocate in a way that other patients don't have to. And then just the kind of historical, intergenerational, very legitimate distrust of the healthcare system, right? And that's not to say then abandon it, but it becomes this real push-pull where, again, it's like, oh, now I have to do all of this additional internal work just to be a part of the system to make sure I'm getting the care that I need as opposed to just focusing on getting treatment, which is already an overwhelming process. More aggressive cancers require more aggressive therapies. And we do know that Black women are less likely to do more aggressive therapies like chemotherapy. A lot of that has to do actually with health literacy, and it has to do with the interaction that they have with that doctor. There's a concept called verbal dominance. And when a doctor doesn't listen to a patient and they talk over that patient and they use jargon, that patient is less likely to consider more aggressive therapies. And when they spend less time in the room, that patient's like, okay, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't want that thing, that chemotherapy, and just give me the surgery and the radiation, or let me find something holistic. And there's a lot of undoing and a lot of education that needs to happen there. And clinicians don't always take the time to do it. Imagine that in the context of your health, in the context of cancer treatment, that you're still having to navigate that experience of feeling like this system is not designed for somebody like me. So what happens when the system wasn't designed for you? Well, Dr. Lynn studied it. Her team looked at health outcomes for MBC patients diagnosed de novo. That's about 5% of patients. This means that doctors caught the cancer when it was already stage four much like Shante and Gary. And we looked at what are the factors associated with both survival as well as early death. And we found that there were some predictable things like tumor subtype, but we also found, not unexpectedly, unfortunately, that race and insurance status were very highly correlated with survival. And that if somebody, for example, had triple negative breast cancer, black race, and was not commercially insured, those patients had very, very poor outcomes. But amazing people are trying to change this, to redesign this whole system. That's coming up after the break. Our healthcare system is biased. We know that. It's biased against people of color and against MBC patients. But we don't have time to wait for healthcare to figure itself out. 
People living with the realities of NPC understand that urgency. So they're filling in the gaps themselves. People like Monisha Parker, the marketing pro with stage two cancer. Monisha is now in remission. But something crazy happened during her treatment that made her want to become an advocate. After I was done with active treatment, my oncologist at the time had like went ahead without consulting me and made an appointment for me to have my ovaries and tubes removed. Let me just stop for a moment. Did you just hear what she said? Her oncologist had not even discussed the possibility of the surgery with her. Basically, what she expressed was that, you know, you're at a higher risk of ovarian cancer. We want to try to combat it. It's a good thing you already have two children because you're not able to have more children. I had so many questions and I was just thrown off that this decision was made without having a conversation with me. And so I actually decided I wasn't doing the surgery. And years later, I had my daughter. And so for me, that was like, okay, how many patients are in this position where they feel like my doctor's saying I need to do this? This is what I need to do. So Monisha just had to share her story. A lot of times when people think about an advocate, they think about like when they go to conferences and the people behind the podium and the people on panels. But for me, I started a blog when I was in treatment, and I can't tell you how many people like reached out to me like, oh my gosh, because of your blog, I went to my doctor or I sent this to my friend who was just diagnosed. And so I think people kind of put advocacy in a box and they think of it one way. If you have a desire and a passion to become an advocate, you can just start with what you have. We all have a story to share. Gary Davis, the man who got breast cancer around Christmas time, had never heard a story like his before. So he also knew that he had to share. I've been to a couple of events for uh, people living with metastatic breast cancer, and 99.9% there are women. (laughs) I'm usually the only guy there. So it's not a comfortable feeling because, like I said, you know, we're not educated that this can't happen to a man. Today, Gary works to educate men about the risks of breast cancer, so information need to be put out there for me and let them know, hey, you need to start getting chest x-rays or even mammograms. But advocacy can take on different forms. It can start at home with your friends and family. I told my son to make sure he tells his doctor to examine his chest area and if it permits, you know, see if you can get an x-ray. Be proactive and try to get that done on an annual basis since you know that it's potentially in the family genes. And what about Shantae Drakeford? After being dismissed for six years, she knew she had to speak up. She's now one of Tiger Lily's angel advocates. Shantae works to educate Black women in communities that have the highest breast cancer death rate. Shantae's had MBC for over eight years now, and she wants others to know that it's okay to have bad days. Sometimes I get in a rut and I get depressed especially if my autonomy is taken from me. I barely can walk. Or I can't do this exercise. I can't snowboard anymore, you know? That frustrates me. I feel my feelings. I cry it out. I bust it out. I cuss it out. (laughs) And then I do things that make me happy. I go play with my dog. I play video games. I talk and chill with my friends. I go traveling. I go to the beach. I just be living. So you have a born date. And then you have a death date. 
and it's usually a dash between and that dash is representative of your life so how do you want to live next time we're going to meet people who are transforming healthcare from the inside out if we just give them the whole bright side of the disease then people aren't going to feel it's very urgent to fund research and it is urgent if you solve it stage four everybody wins in part two of denied we're hacking healthcare denied is a production of offscript health Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Tonight is hosted by me, May McCarmo. Our senior producer is Stephanie Cohn. Tamika Adams is our producer. Hannah Beal is our editor. Sound mixing and engineering by Kyle Moore. Music is by Soundstripe with an original song by Aaron Weber. This episode was sound designed by Stephanie Cohn. Special thanks to our nonprofit partners, Sandra Gunn from Leslie's Week and Sonia Nedley from MetaViber.